maybe the direct influence of the press has changed. And of course, in, in the US, with the president dismissing the media, right, left and centre, every chance he gets, then I think it, it is, I don't know if it's in decline, it's certainly going to find a new niche. Having been a tech and business journalist for 30 years, Guy Clapton has seen and adapted to all of the changes that digital has prompted, from declining circulation figures and publications going out of business, to multimedia and the changing nature of the journalist-PR relationship. I do think some of the expectations on some of the journalist sides are quite unreasonable. Why do you think I don't do this for a living? Good grief. (laughs) While journalism is his focus and interest, Guy has a healthy level of empathy for PR people who have to maintain dialogues with journalists when some of them don't answer the phone or reply to emails. What hasn't helped is GDPR. There are a number of PR companies out there, I've spoken to one or two, who are actually a little bit nervous of approaching journalists for the first time now that GDPR has come in. In today's show, I talk to Guy about the changing nature of journalism and how communications professionals can adapt to best achieve results in a world of freelance journalists with different requirements. This is Digital Download, a podcast that explores the latest thinking in digital communications, PR and social media. Here's your host, Paul Sutton. Thanks for joining me, Guy. I have... I'm going to to start that. You're right. It is you that screws up, isn't it? (laughs) It is, seriously. Every single bloody time. It's ridiculous. I know that you have a podcast coming up of your own, which is going to be called, I believe, The Near Futurist? Yes, that's right. Thanks for mentioning that, Paul. Uh, lovely and unprompted. <laughs> uh, I uh, Don't make it sound rehearsed. <laughs> yes, I, I, I've been a tech journalist now for 30 years. And uh, over the last few years, I've noticed a lot of people at conferences describing themselves as futurists. And some of them are incredibly good. I'm absolutely not against that sort of thing. You know, there's a, a few, I will not mention names. There's a woman called Nicola Millard from British Telecom who uh, will blow your mind quite happily and substantiate every word. There's Rohit Talwar, there's Dave Copeland. These people are excellent. Awful lot of them talk about what's going to happen in the next 25 years, next 30 years. My vision is in the next 25 years, what's going to happen is I'm going to retire. If I'm still talking about this stuff by that stage, uh, it's because the pension plan is bombed. (laughs) But on a more serious note, I'm also quite keen that if I do get to uh, speak to people through a podcast or on the stage or wherever uh, about uh, technology, about the way working patterns are changed, I would like them to have something they would be able to do that's actionable over the next, say, you know, but when they get into the office and they can start preparing now rather than think, oh, 25 years time, we'll be doing such and such. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at the next five years. I'm editing a book with Rohit Talwar called The Next Five Years. I'm uh, preparing this podcast, which I'm uh, provisionally titling The Near Futurist, and we will see where it goes from there. So when's the podcast, or when are you hoping it will be available? I did the first interview for it only yesterday. I should stress it's not going to be me pontificating. It is going to be a bunch of interviews because I'm a journalist. It's what I do. I'm hoping that I'll get a few more under my belt and then start to release them at the end of October. I think you need to have three or four under your belt in case of unforeseen delays before you actually uh, go public with them. But yes, end of October. Yeah, fantastic. I think you're right in in that fact from experience. But yeah, I look forward to that. Actually, that sounds like a really good listen. So I will certainly be tuning into that thank you so yeah you said then you said i'm a journalist which is why i have invited you on today really because Mm. i wanted to talk to you about how digital has really changed the environment of journalism over the last five or ten years most people listening to this podcast are marketers and i know that 
some of them have big questions and and there's maybe a lack of understanding of the way that journalists are working nowadays. So I thought it would make a really interesting chat just to find out your perspective. So to start with, do you want to cover off how you think that journalism and the environment around journalism has changed over the last sort of five to 10 years with digital in mind? Sure. I think, first of all, even over the last 15 years, there is as yet, I would suggest no real clarity over just how journalism is going to be sustainable and how uh, it's going to pay for itself. I mean, this is very much something that's of interest to journalists rather than to the readers, uh, because we quite like getting paid. Uh, I think uh, the prevalence of unpaid for coverage, unpaid for uh, articles, um, is uh, you know people like the Huffington Post who don't pay their contributors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yeah. is um, becoming quite an issue. Journalists were very, very sniffy about that at first. They said, "Yes, you'll have all the amateurs coming in. Any fool with um, with a PC can now call themselves." as a commentator and true though that is there are also some people who are very good at what they do they're very interesting they're very engaging and those are the people i think are going to provide the real competition for the uh, journalists because there are people who will write stuff comment on stuff for nothing and then there's journalists turning up who've really got to uh, provide their value if anybody's going to pay us for what they do that's of interest internally to journalism what's happening outside to the uh, to the reader to the listener i think is that uh, this whole democratization if you like this whole you know the fact that it's so widespread means that the sanity checking is more important than ever we've had this whole advent of fake news stuff like that because anybody can publish anything and on the other side of that anybody can dismiss anything and say well that's fake i don't believe yep. it etc and there isn't the same rigor that there used to be about uh, actually proving that what you said is or isn't correct and i don't think that's coming back i don't that genie can't be put back in the bottle you said then about amateurs and does that almost conversely make professional journalists more valuable because if you've got all this amateur commentating going on surely the role of a journalist actually becomes more important does it not okay i want to distinguish between uh, amateur and amateurish uh, when i said amateur what i actually meant was unpaid yes okay the original definition of the word you know amateur from the uh, french or the latin whatever it is doing something because you love it that does not mean that they're necessarily amateurish they may be really thoroughly brief they could be, be if it's a specialist niche they could be better researched than the journalist who's just done a quick search on google because uh, they, he or she has got a quick news story to write but it's only going to pay 50 quid or something so they're not going to really bother so i think the amateurish people you know they're the problem with actually putting wrong facts out there or alternative facts <laughs> or whatever you want to call them yeah the amateur people can well be a source of very good uh, very well written copy and those those are the ones that threaten me professionally yeah and with with fake news in mind which is something you reference there how do you as a journalist identify what may well be fake i've seen something for example just this week with Brewdog and there was some fake stories circulating and I know the PR agency that works with them are having to battle this. How as a journalist do you see that from the other side? Uh, right, okay, I have to declare a small interest in there because you know Brewdog does this occasional uh, crowdfunding thing. Yeah, I'm a tiny shareholder. If you ever go into a Brewdog bar and pick up a serviette, I'll think, well, that's my contribution. <laughs> okay. In principle, I think there are always going to be these misunderstandings. But yeah, these things can catch light massively. But I, I think you're right in this instance. We know that something has happened we don't quite know what yet uh, we do know that uh, two breweries have got an awful lot of publicity out of it uh, so uh, you know cynical me so what sort of level of competition is there now among journalists and has that increased or decreased as a result of what's been happening digital 
certainly in the freelance market, I think there's a lot more journalists out there because uh, the a lot of the uh, outlets have shut down. See, when I first started as a journalist, 1989, the computer market was just getting going. 91, 92, thereabouts, the first PC world opens, actually near where I live now, funnily enough. Then, you know, so that was the your sign that there are going to be computers in every home. Uh, and yeah. uh, as indeed there now are, more or less. I mean, that's a, quite a sweeping statement. It depends on people's incomes. It depends on uh, all sorts of stuff like that. But it's it's likely that uh, there is a computer in many ho- in most homes. Yeah. Uh, so then there was this great swathe of computer magazines. If you walked into W. H. Smith's uh, it, when I went freelance in 1993, W. H. Smith's walls would be covered with computer magazines. They still are to an extent, but there's many fewer of them. And this is why uh, in uh, 94, 95, I decided I was going to target the national press rather than the computer press, the specific tech press, as my markets, because I thought uh, they're unlikely to just vanish overnight. Whereas I could see an awful lot of these uh, tech titles just going away and indeed they did then of course the internet really came into full swig about 96 97 and so much information uh, and this is what i mean by the, the the amateur people out there but to even the professionals as well were putting so much information so much good quality stuff out there without any cost you know they were basing it on advertising it was just free that i think uh, you know an awful lot of the, the competition started tightening up and the result was uh, within um, publications an awful lot of them closed down who were hiring staff so suddenly there are an awful lot of freelancers out there that hasn't really changed yeah okay you referenced there the decrease in the number of titles on the shelves Mm. do you think that the mainstream media broadly speaking has lost its influence as a result of the fact that anyone can publish to the web now when it comes to newspapers or monthly magazines or whatever it might be do you think there is a lack of influence or, or less influence now I would like to think there's more sanity checking. I mean, whatever your view on Brexit, whatever your view on uh, Donald Trump, uh, the fact that they got in there and they are in no way the sort of the establishment figures and uh, you know the preserving the status quo. I would like to think that means that people are thinking for themselves more. I suspect, in fact, it just means that they're listening to other people, and that uh, the uh, you know some of the sanity checks may be happening, some of them may not. Right. Be. Maybe the direct influence of the press has uh, has changed, and of course. Of course, in, in the US, with the president dismissing the media every right, left and centre, every chance he gets, and indeed uh, in the, the UK with uh, this notion of the mainstream media, the MSM being evil if you believe certain publications or even if you believe, if you believe certain politicians or their followers, perhaps more, uh, more accurately, then I think it, it is, I don't know if it's in decline, it's certainly going to find a new niche. My name's Helen Madden, I'm founder and director of Madden PR. There's several reasons that I find being a member really valuable. It gives me access to very quick training that's really cost effective and really current, which is so essential for the work that I'm doing in terms of social media and digital. It gives me access to other people in my industry in terms of being able to use them as sounding boards. And then also in terms of just making sure that I'm on top of the hot topics of the industry. The Digital Download Membership Scheme gives you on-demand advice, support and coaching when you need it. With exclusive online training, video Q&As with topic experts and a members-only network to discuss all of the latest developments, it gives you the confidence and the peace of mind you need to succeed in digital communications. For full details of the Membership Scheme, visit paulsutton.co forward slash members. 
How important now, from a PR perspective, from a marketing perspective, is the media type when a story is pitched to a journalist? And by that, I mean things like video, audio, images, graphics, all that sort of stuff. Because my impression would be that a journalist or a publication now has less time, less resource, perhaps less money to put towards that stuff. So has the role of people pitching stories changed in terms of being more collaborative in terms of the media that they are pushing towards a journalist? Yes, I think that's a very valid point. The way I would look at it is that the tools available to you in the PR world to pitch uh, pitch to journalists like me have increased. There's nothing worse than a great big email overstuffed with absolutely everything and every potential option. But you can certainly say to me, you know, something like, you know, if you want a video for this, I can provide a video. If you want a video conference with the uh, the subject of this, I, I can arrange that. We always were desperate for photos of everything because uh, we didn't have photo budgets. The only problem with the video side of it is that journalists hate to lose control of a story. Now, I know, of course, one of the challenges in uh, public relations is that you need to get your clients' messages into our copy rather than whatever we fancy writing. Sure. But, uh, you know, that's just one of the tensions that exists between the professions and it can be, uh, you know, done right. It can be all good fun. But if I say to you, thanks, Paul, can you please do a video for me? I've handed over complete control of that piece of editorial. It may be necessary mm-hmm. so to get the story that I need or to fill the space that I have to fill. But And it could be a generational thing, but I would be personally less comfortable with handing over that much control. Uh, I, I trust you, of course, but, you know, to uh, you know, to some other pool somewhere. The evil, <laughs> the, the evil one who will just pitch his client stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that control thing, again, that partly comes back to what we were talking about with the um, more amateur and professional side again. But when it comes to things like video, I guess, Let's say you are approached by someone Mm. and you agree that actually video would be good for this story. And you obviously saying you want control over that or at least a degree of control. Do you work with marketers in order to produce that video very often? Or is that not something that that working relationship, something that doesn't exist? I think you can certainly have some input. uh, And the journalist would have the veto and say, if it's not sufficiently independent, if it is just a puff piece that you produce, it's not going onto my website. You you can say that, absolutely. And uh, as long as the PR person believes you, uh, that's fine. You may be doing a little bit of bluff on an empty hand there. You know, you may have an editor breathing down your neck saying something's going to go up there or else we're going to lose readers, we're going to lose advertisers and you're going to you're going to carry the can. So there is always that thing. And of course, the PR person is equally aware that uh, they might be doing a little bit of bluff. But I think you know, it is this thing about handing over control and ultimately the control, I suspect, will rest with the person who is paying for the video and who's commissioning the video. It's a bit like I had uh, an incident recently, um, and this isn't about video at all, but uh, I was writing a story for medium.com and I had uh, a few questions for a particular organization. The time differential meant it was going to be very difficult to schedule a call. And so I wrote some questions out, which I thought were very, you know, not savage questions. They were just informative stuff. Sent them off. And uh, after a few days, the response came back from the PR person. And the first sentence was, 
here are the answers to the questions they have decided to address. And the bland stuff <laughs> came out of it. And I know the PR person, I, I don't think he or she was particularly happy with that at all. And uh, they were very unsurprised when I had to write them and say, I'm afraid the editors cut every reference to your client because they just didn't deliver the decent quotes. No, absolutely. But it is the thing about handing over control completely. You know, when I, when I hit send on that email, I knew perfectly well it was out of my hands. I'd effectively forfeited the right to say, uh, no, that's not quite what I meant, or can I press you on that uh, a little, or could I have something more specific? It's it's never done, or almost never done in an aggressive way, but if you've actually handed over the control of that, they can write what they want, or they can video what they want, etc. And you've got to either take it or leave it when it's sent to you. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that marketers have to do more now to get a story placed than they used to have to do? I think they have to. They need more skills. Uh, I think the, okay. the competition. The competition was always, uh, or they may need more skills. The competition was always severe. When I was, you know, eighties, nineties, when I was working on Microscope magazine, which was a trade publication for the computer sector, you'd get hundreds of press releases every day, and we were a weekly, and we had limited amount of uh, spaces, and we were quite reluctant to base too many stories on press releases. We would rather they come from us actually going out and finding out what was happening from people. So. There really were quite narrow opportunities for press release-based uh, stories. So the competition is still fierce and always has been. But, uh, of course, now if you uh, want to exist in the multimedia world, you've got to be able to operate a video camera of some sort. Now, I appreciate that you can have a high-definition video from your phone, but uh, you know, it's, it's the lump of flesh on the end of the phone that's actually going to make a decent picture, stroke sound, stroke yeah. audio or whatever so you know you need those skills as well and you know you uh, have adopted this podcast as uh, a way of uh, communicating with sections of your audience uh, so you've needed to acquire the skills to operate the piece of software that produces a podcast i'm not suggesting it's complex it can't be because i'm doing doing it as well it's, it's quite straightforward <laughs> but we have had to acquire those little skills if you told us when we started off whenever you started off and when i started off if you said you'll have to handle a computer you'll have to be able to make it produce sounds and you'll have to be able to edit videos on that my head would have started to bleed and I would yeah, have started yeah. to ask for my mum which is <laughs> would have been hopeless because she'd also be rubbish at that stuff <laughs> I think you're dead right and it's something that I try and drive home to everyone I work with all the time is that these skills they are not actually hard to learn you just need to practice them almost and like you say with a podcast it's not difficult to produce a podcast it really is not but you have to put the work in to find out how to do that in the first place. Yeah, and also the uh, I think listeners will forgive a great deal of uh, technical glitches if the podcast is any good. I mean, the, the, the bottom line still, which is very encouraging for the world of journalism, and I hope encouraging for the world of PR as well, the bottom line is if it's any good, hopefully someone will actually listen. Yes. Or you can actually sit back and say, yes, that was actually worth it. I enjoyed doing that interview because I learned something, and that is what it's all about. To the point of being uh, the, the skills being easy, but you have to learn them. I think actually there's a generational divide coming in here. You and I have had to learn these things. Uh, we both have daughters. Uh, I, I know yours is considerably younger than mine. They haven't had to learn this. Yeah. If you say you need to edit this bit of video, that's okay. They've been doing it on their tablet all their lives. Yeah. Uh, there will be something else for them when they get to their age that their kids will be, uh, will be doing. But sure. we've had to learn it. Uh, it is actually perfectly natural to somebody who's grown up in the world of smartphones. Yeah. 
Totally agree. So when you look ahead at sort of five years time, then in, in terms of the way your, your podcast is going to be, what are the sort of things that you are taking note of at the moment? Uh, what I'm taking note of is things like the, the interview I did yesterday was the fact uh, about uh, the future of payments and the, uh, the the fact that cash is no longer as big as it uh, as it was. Yep. Very recently, I went to the cash point, but that was the first time in about five weeks that I've actually bothered to get cash out. I've uh, noticed or rather I, I've been prompted to notice by a client with whom I've written the white paper that if you go to the supermarket and you uh, pay with your card, as most of us do, they've stopped asking, would you like any cash back? Right. That was just a little thing that sort of sort of changed because you know yeah. people are no longer as interested in cash as they were. These little things that changed that we hadn't noticed. I'll also be looking at uh, the fact that some of your managers in the future may, uh, or colleagues, may actually be pieces of software behaving as if they were people. Yeah. And indeed, you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence they might actually be developing their own upgrades and quite where you get to in terms of who owns the copyright to an upgrade that a piece of software has written for itself i have no idea because they're not legally people so there's all those those sorts of things coming in i'm also very interested in the mobile technology i I know this is a middle-aged man talking but the stuff we can do with our phones these days Uh i acquired a few years ago a fairly sophisticated microphone yesterday i ended up using when i was doing this interview i ended up using my phone yeah and I've got to say, the sound quality is superb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, why, why have I spent all that uh, money on this other stuff? Because it was useful at the time, of course. So, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's those little things and the way it changes, uh, the way technology changes the way that we uh, actually operate, you know, the fact that we are growing up, taking it for granted that just about everybody can probably edit a video if they're under 30. Yes. Uh, that, that's a huge step change. Yeah, and uh, it's it's crept up on us. We barely noticed. It's it could be a very positive change. I'm not moaning about this. I think it's very exciting that people can do all this stuff, communicate in these new ways. But it is changing us, and it's, so I'll be hoping to interview a couple of psychologists as well as uh, technologists to talk about the effect this is having on us. Without saying we're all addicted to our mobile phones, because that's been said so many times, and I don't know if it's actually true. It's interesting. I've been reading just recently the book Sapiens, and I don't know if you've read Sapiens. I haven't. I'm afraid. About the history of mankind and the way that's come through and the second book looks at where mankind may well go in the next you know foreseeable future and even some of that just makes you really stop and think about exactly as you say it's the little tiny incremental changes that you don't even notice because they all they all just flow together and then suddenly 10 years down the line you're looking at completely different ways of behavior and thinking and doing things in different ways even down to the the internet, for example, and you and I are both old enough to remember when there was no internet, hmm. which now seems completely inconceivable, I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when my daughter was very young, uh, this would be about mid-2000s sometime, she, she loves it when I tell these stories, by the way, when we told her that uh, not only did we have uh, black and white television, but you couldn't put it on pause. Yeah. And she was almost in tears. <laughs> just like, oh, the squalor these people grew up with. It's been awful. So she, she she had genuine sympathy for it. She thought it was actually sad. Yeah. So going back to the journalism thing. Yes. Journalists now, is something you and I have talked about in the past, is that different journalists prefer different ways of communicating with marketers or not communicating with marketers, as the case may be. Yes. You, for example, I know use Facebook quite a lot. Others have a preference for Twitter. And there has been the odd person who said, I'll only accept things by tweets. Others prefer LinkedIn. Others still prefer email still. There's all of this stuff going on there. How the hell is a marketer supposed to create dialogues with journalists when 
the ways of contacting someone are so diverse now that you almost don't know where to start. This is going to sound a really unhelpful answer, but uh, my only answer is that you've just identified one of the many reasons I've never become a marketer, because you are expected. <laughs> Why do you think I don't do this for a living? Good grief. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to, to an extent, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that's not my problem. I do think some of the expectations on some of the journalist sides, not all of them, are quite unreasonable. People think that, uh, you know, there's, say, 2,000, that's a figure I plucked out of the air, but maybe there's 2,000 freelance journalists and staff journalists out there and it is your job, uh, you probably working in your spare room, same as I'm working in mine, to differentiate between all of them and to uh, make sure that uh, you've got your, all of your uh, lists are up to date. The fact that there are companies who actually specialise in providing lists and they manage to fall behind as well because journalists change jobs uh, so frequently yeah. is uh, another thing entirely. I think the thing to do if you want any practical takeaway from this is to identify a few journalists and or publications that you are going to be absolutely vital to you. Target them and try to keep tabs on who's doing what and how their preference are uh, preferences on just a handful of publications or a handful of uh, uh, blogs or a handful of outlets or a handful of writers. And that should be relatively easy to uh, uh, to manage. I'll tell you what hasn't helped. What hasn't helped is GDPR okay. because there are a number of uh, there are a number of PR companies out there. I've spoken to one or two who are actually a little bit nervous of approaching journalists for the first time. Another GDPR has uh, come in. Personally, I think that's an extreme reaction. I, I don't think that's what GDPR is for. I think if you were in court and a journalist was saying you may not contact me, I'm a journalist. How dare you? I suspect the court would uh, say, and I'm speculating here. But I suspect the court would say you're a journalist. They're a PR. Come on. Get over it. Uh, but that's that's the legal term. Uh, but I think that's not held. So what a lot of these PR companies are doing, they are buying in lists. And, of course, there are some very out-of-date, dodgy lists out there or uh, lists that just have the fact that you're a journalist in there, therefore you go on every list. You can tell when you're getting them because it asks you if you'd like to opt out at the end rather than it being a personal thing. I'm a technology journalist. I'm a business journalist. Only two days ago I had this press release on divorce statistics, which was, you know, it's bad enough, but it happened to land on my my wedding anniversary. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> 26 years, and there it was saying, Well, that's it, mate. Sorry, mate. That's it. Like, you know, here's some of the factors. And I was saying, What? You know, sort of overuse of handheld device. Yeah, got that. Yeah, check. <laughs> Doesn't mention, you know, total obsession with Doctor Who coming back next week. So I'm okay there. No, okay. Probably been oversharing that. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I mean, from someone who, who's blogged for years and runs a podcast and stuff, I get them all the time. And you're right, you can spot them a mile off. As soon as it lands in your inbox, even before opening it, sometimes you, you just know this is some random list that someone has bought. and it's uh, yeah. Someone's charged them good money for that, and, so, and they paid good money for that in good faith. And I, I, that upsets me, um, because, you know, there are people taking advantage, and that, that uh, you know, really does upset me. Well, yes, I, I agree to an extent, but then I also think if you are the person who has bought that list, then in a sense, I think... It, it, I don't know how to say this without being rude. You're allowed to make a mistake once. It's it's when I've alerted people to this and they say, oh, well, you're on the list, you can always opt out. And uh, then you realise that later they've just bought another list. That, that, those are the people who are, uh, who are annoying. But I think uh, I think a lot of people do these things in good faith at first. Okay, well, listen, it's been really good talking to you. Where can people contact you online if they want to talk to you further about this? Well, thanks very much. I'm hiding on Twitter with uh, as Guy Clapperton. Uh, that's probably the least but as 
one word, which is possibly the least convincing pseudonym anybody has ever uh, heard. They'd be welcome <laughs> to do that. Uh, my uh, website, clappertonmediaassociates.com, has a regular blog, although I've missed this week. I've been very naughty uh, with media tips. Obviously, the idea is to publicize my media training service, but I'm, uh, yep. uh, I am always make sure there is uh, something of value in there. And, of course, guy at clapperton.co.uk is my email address and has been since 1996. And uh, that's a very good way of tra- attracting my attention. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe to Digital Download on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you've got any ideas for future topics you'd like to see covered or people you'd like to hear from, contact me on Twitter where I'm at the Paul Sutton. Thank you for listening.